family here today. Surprise, surprise. If I'd have known you were coming, I'd have put you to work. I could have drowned yesterday, man. I'm just glad to be here and alive. Uh, it was quite, a, quite an adventure yesterday. You know, I've canoed a decent number of times to have a few stories to tell. Uh, but this is the first time I've ever been on a canoe trip where all the people came back, but one of the canoes just didn't make it ever again. Never, was never seen again. I mean, there's been canoe wrecks, canoes beat up, canoes with leaks in them. This canoe went down and was never seen again. <laughs> we couldn't find it. It just disappeared. And of course, it was being captained by our fearless leader, Jason, who were just, yeah, I know, exactly. And, the, you know, his poor, trusting, pregnant wife was in the same canoe with him. And they're alive. They had to go through the woods and find their way out, but uh, they made it back alive. The canoe did not make it. So... We'll have funeral services for the canoe later this week. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning, but I just felt led directed this morning to take our attention to Jeremiah chapter 8. We'll abandon whatever introduction I had. Now, if you've got a paper Bible, you can go ahead and put one finger in Acts chapter 14 while you're turning to Acts chapter 8. So you can do that with a paper Bible. If you've got a computer Bible, I I don't know how to help you. You're on your own. Here's one of the things I want to draw our attention to. we've, We've been looking at these passages in Acts chapter 13 and today in Acts chapter 14. And one of the things I want to help us to do is, is, I want to say, enjoy our Bible reading, to be gripped and affected by our Bible reading. And some of the times that we're not affected by Bible reading is because, as we said last week, we live our lives at a terribly man-centered way of thinking and looking at things. So we pick the Bible up, inviting it into our man-centered world. And seeking for it to supply points of interest to a life that's very, very, very man-centered. And we pick the Bible up and we find out like it's wired to a different current. It's God-centered. And so it's trying to tell us things about God. Now here's the reality that I don't want any of us to miss out on. The things that you and I need the most in our lives is about revelation about God. We tend to think it's everything else. It's our need. It's something about me. It's something about others. It's the activity in life. It's, it's current stuff. And, and God can become very, very, very distant in that moment. But the most important thing for any of us today is God himself and who he is. For we were made in his image and we were made for him. So when we read the scriptures, and I want to just prepare us to read Acts chapter 14 and truly, truly benefit from what is there by, by drawing our attention here to Jeremiah chapter eight. Jeremiah is, is, I'm going to say he's trying to fix something. He's interacting with people's lives that are broken and messed up and he's stepping in and he's going to bring them in a certain direction. And it's interesting where he goes. Jeremiah chapter eight, verse 18 says, my joy is gone. 
Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Skip down to verse 20. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. And so there's trouble in the midst of these people. And it feels like it's too late. There's trouble. And it's just too late. And he continues on. Painting the picture here. Sin is affecting people's lives. Life is coming apart. And when life starts to come apart, if life starts to come apart for you in a certain way, you'll be amazed at what you start to compromise and how you start to treat people and what corners you'll cut. Because you start being very, very, very man-centered when the need gets high in your own life. And you'll take this out on others. And that's what happens here in Jeremiah in verse 4 of chapter 9. He says, let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me. There's a little hint of where Jeremiah sees the problem in this passage. Skip down to verse 12 now. Who's the man who's wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Why all this trouble? This is a troubled people, trouble that has evaporated the joy. It's brought grief. It's made hearts sick. It's created relational tensions and breakdowns. Why all this trouble? There's two things in this passage. There's something about God here and there's something about man here, right? And then the gospel steps in the middle of all that. What is it about man here? Well, God says in verse 14, they have stubbornly followed their own hearts. You want to find out sometimes, this is just humbling in a, in a world in which we are trained to blame everybody else. Our trouble, more often than not, is bound up in when I am following my own heart, stubbornly. I want what I want. And people are in the way of that. And all these things become possible in that moment. That's what we hear about man in this verse. So man is highlighted and then we have the famous verses that are over in verse 23 of chapter 9. Right before that, Jeremiah just depicting the situation says, For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Trouble has come home. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts 
boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As I said last week, if I had a really catchy title and could spend a few moments in an introduction highlighting things that are in the category of man's wisdom, uh, how to be smart, how to have and increase riches in your life, how to gain in these man-centered areas, all of us sit up and pay attention in those things because we think that's the means of releasing us from the sorrows and the griefs and the conflicts of life. Treat me how to be a man. Teach me that. And yet God says here in the midst of all this trouble, don't, don't bother trying to boast in those areas. Let the one who boasts. So you need to spend your time learning something and paying attention to something. Pay attention to this. Know me. Know me. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because I think, one, I think sadly in an information age, we have lost interest in the Bible. We are interested in information that sounds like the kind of stuff God says, don't bother boasting in that. But we feel like we got to know that. I got to keep up on it. I've got to follow the trends. I've got to know the latest thing. I've got to watch all the posts and interaction and the time evaporates. And next thing you know, we just don't pick the Bible up. And then when we do, we don't pick it up and pay attention to what's in these passages. And what is in these passages that we cannot overlook is what it tells us about us, what it tells us about God, and what it tells us about the gospel. All right, so let's read today's passage now. Acts 14, verse 1. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. 
Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Father, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I I can so easily be a person who read something and then 30 seconds later, I can't tell you what I read. Uh, Lord, would you guard us from that taking place? Uh, We are limited in our abilities, but you are an infinite God. Lord, we see so little, but from your vantage point, you see it all. And Lord, in this passage, you have have tucked away truth and revelation that will affect and transform our lives. So we look to you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot in this chapter. I started to introduce you to the Acts chapter 14 cafeteria line. You know, usually I just try to go after one kind of thing in a passage. But there's a lot of good stuff here. You'll see the menu there on your outline. There's about four different things we could have spent some time with. They're all good. But I'm going to grab the first one and the last one because they're related. And we're going to talk through the response of disbelief and hostility. Learn something about man. And then we're going to look about God's sufficient witness. God has something to say. God testifies about himself. And we'll learn about that at the end. So first, let's look here in verse 2. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You know, America is not the first pluralistic society in in the world's history. These guys were pretty pluralistic. I mean, you had, you had Greek heathenism sitting right alongside Jewish faith and and all kinds of mixtures in between. So these folks had to learn how to kind of get along with each other with their different beliefs, right? So we kind of got that going on in America. But interesting, in Iconium, as they heard the gospel presented to them, they were anything but tolerant of this new diversified way of looking at the scriptures. You know, here comes to town, these men who identified their Jews And they're opening the Old Testament scriptures. And then they've been invited to speak in these settings. And when they stand up, they explain the scriptures that are familiar, as we looked in Acts 13, familiar to these guys. But they explain in such a way that adds a little bit of an understanding to it. That interestingly doesn't cause these people to go, hmm. Well, guys, thanks for stopping in today. That that was a really interesting presentation. And, And hey, we're going to. We're going to think about some of that. That's interesting. No, they don't respond that way. Those who did not receive it responded with aggression, with hostility. They wanted to poison others and keep them from coming to agreement with that. They went so far as to mistreat the one speaking and to stone them and run them out of town. Right? So apparently this, was a, this too was a culture needing to learn some tolerance. Right? We have some tolerance issues today. But I can't say that we're a whole lot better than the Iconians. We have some similar responses to the gospel as well. In the book Evidence for God, it says, In the spring semester of 2003, Derek McCarson began his college experience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. A committed Christian, Derek enrolled in a course titled Introduction to the New Testament. The professor, Bart Ehrman, 
walked in and started abruptly. I'd like to see a show of hands. How many Bible-believing Christians do we have in the auditorium today? Come on, don't be bashful. After about a half a dozen students raised their hands, Airman said, that's good. It looks like we have a few Christians here today. Welcome to intro to the New Testament. My goal this semester will be to change everything you Christians think you know about the Bible and about Jesus. And that takes place on college campuses all over the place. Now, what's interesting, this book highlights it a little bit as well, is ain't nobody walking into introduction to Islam and say, my goal at the end of this class is to change everything you believe about Allah and about the Koran. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, Islam is becoming more and more welcomed in it. And if you dare to question it, well, shame on you, you intolerant person. And even our politics is starting to sound like we need to be very careful in how we touch on the issues that have to do with Islam. Even if we're referring to terrorism and all that, be very careful with Islam. But this country is not careful with Christianity in the slightest of ways. It opposes Christianity. It opposes people who are so dogmatic and narrow-minded to believe the things that Christianity presents. Right, now, my question is, what's, what's the deal from whether it's first century Iconium or 21st century America? What is it about the gospel that makes people want to stand up and shoot it and shoot the people who bear the message and oppose it and highlight that there's something just of all the things to believe in this pluralized society? Hey, listen, Jews didn't like Gentiles in this society, but they'll come together to stone Christians Right? I mean, you got Jews who feel like I can't even go eat in your house because you're not a Jew and you'll defile me. But can we get together and, and stone some Christians? Isn't that amazing the unity that comes about in these areas? Well, there's, there's some of this is not a mystery, and I think we just need to own the reality of it. I think I'll put this in your outline. Inherent in an accurate understanding is that Christianity requires you to turn from a contrary belief. When Christianity gets presented into these settings, it doesn't just come in like, you know, a choice of wallpaper. It's like, oh, I don't think we like the stripes. I think we'd rather go with a forest scene. You know, we, we, we have options. Christianity steps in and says, there are no options. This is it. All right, so you, you do understand it. it. It's a little offensive to be told that. So this is not just, wow, those people in Iconium are real jerks. Well, they heard a message that's not easy to listen to. The gospel is not an easy message to listen to. Because it requires you to abandon something and embrace it. And that is what the gospel is. Acts 14, verse 15, a little bit later we're going to look at this. Paul says, we bring you good news that you should turn. From these vain things to a living God. That doesn't, doesn't sound kosher, you know? We bring you good news. You need to stop believing in these vain things of yours. I mean, you can't even compliment what they're saying, what they're believing in. You need to turn from that to the living God. All right, inherent is that. Did I just say something's right and something's wrong? Did I just do that when I said that? They, they, they did that. So immediately they show up in Iconium 
and label something's right and something's wrong. Something's living and something's vain. Paul will do the same thing to the uh, folks in Athens in Acts chapter 17. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think, right? Stop it. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Listen, you read past that like somebody who lives in Metairie. You understand in that time frame, by the time you walk to Paul's meeting, you would have passed several businesses along the way who specialized in what he just described. Creating personal idols, forming and fashioning them. They made a business out of this. The gospel so disrupted this that it it was the source of riots. Not so much because of its theology, but because of its economic disruption. Paul came in and turned these idols upside down on their head like he's doing right here. And all of a sudden, idol-making business takes a nosedive. And all the idol-making business owners would like to take these dudes out. Let's stone some of these guys. They're killing our business. So this is a common thing. So here Paul stands in Athens and he says, you ought not be thinking the divine has to do with these little items you're making with your hands. A little bit of a rub there if you've been a guy who's been making those idols or believing in them. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere? The gospel shows up at any address with with that requirement. It commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from what they currently believe and to accept the claims and the work of Christ. It requires that. It commands that. So in some ways, when you look at people's response to Christianity, we, we shouldn't be completely puzzled. It, it kind of picks a fight. Doesn't it? It shows up in your world, whatever it is that makes sense to you, whatever you're committed to, whatever you're walking with, whatever you've been raised in, whatever you've valued all this time, and it shows up and it says, turn from that. Okay, that's a little offensive. I'm sorry, it just is. That's a little difficult to swallow. But it's the gospel. We've got to do something with it. Let me just say this to take the gospel off of, off of a hook that it's not, it's not on a hook by itself. Christianity is not unique in its intolerance of other views. Christianity does not tolerate other views. But neither does secularism. It's the reason why you can walk into a, a university that's majoring in secularism and, and ungodly atheism and hear the presentation. How many of y'all are Christians? Well, my goal here, well, wait, 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 I thought your goal was to teach the material. No, no. My goal is for all you Christians to abandon what you've always believed. He wants you to turn, right? Secularism doesn't put up with certain views, right? So let's not, let's not live in the doghouse like, oh, we're Christians. We're those, we're those intolerant people on the planet. No, Islam's not tolerant. The only reason why you might think it is because you don't know anything about it. There's a reason why Islam spreads the way it does. There's a reason why it's aggressive the way it does. It's not tolerant of other beliefs. It wants and requires you to abandon beliefs. Oh, and by the way, 
if you don't pay attention to this as a governmental society and you look back on what Islam does to governments, Islam is a national religion. It wants to turn your nation into a religious institution. It's not tolerant. Now, I know being a Christian, you know, I grew up here in New Orleans. New Orleans is a Catholic community. I minded my business my whole religious life. I didn't have anything to say about anybody and what they believed growing up. I just didn't. Nobody did. You did your thing. They did their thing. You kind of made room for theirs to be okay, yours to be okay. And then I read the Bible. And all of a sudden, I had an opinion about things. All of a sudden, I noticed the Bible said some things that kind of worked against things that that I believed and was raised in. And so I I began to have opinions. Well, next thing you know, you know, I had enough opinions to where eventually somebody felt like, dude, you got problems, man. (laughs) You just, you're obnoxious to be around. Now, maybe that was because of the way I was saying it, but... (coughs) I was just highlighting some things the Bible said that seemed to be in contradiction to things that I'd grown up being taught as a Catholic. And so, you know, you can have this opinion that, you know, those, those Christians, they're so obnoxious. They tell you how you can pray and who you can pray to and what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that. All right, listen, the only way you don't know this is that you just don't read church history. But about the time of the Reformation... When a bunch of Christians began to say, hey, uh, excuse me, uh, big church, we have these questions. I've been reading the Bible lately, and uh, there's some things here that we kind of don't see the same way as the church has begun to see it over the last several hundred years. Uh, so we'd like to talk about that. You know, that was presented by a guy nailing something to a door. Say, so, hey, can we talk about these things right here? The response back to that later in that same century was to write a doctrine, a, a document called the Council of Trent. If you've never read the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent throws one punch after another, after another, after another, and beats to a pulp anybody who dares to believe differently than the Catholic Church does. 30-something anathemas are pronounced, not just diversity of, hey, thank you for your opinion, that's your way of seeing the Bible, we appreciate a variety of views. No, if you believe that, you're cut off. If you believe that, you're damned. If you believe that, you are out of the church. If you believe that, you are under the curse of God over and over and over and over again. Now, did you know that? Because Christianity stands up and says, hey, we believe some things here. Oh, you're so intolerant. Listen, there's intolerance everywhere around us. Christianity is not unique in that. But what's the deal with Christianity getting in the room with people. And next thing you know, man, there's, a, there's just a fire has broke out. There's a fight on your hands. Those are fighting words. Well, it is the nature of preaching something that requires people to turn is part of it. But part of it is what is inside of man. And this is where when we read this story here, the gospel got preached. Do, do you have any idea why the crowds respond the way they do? Theologically. Do you know why it is that people listen to a couple of guys come to town, explain the Bible, and put Jesus into the Old Testament and explain that to them? And they are fuming enough so to gather people together to kill people. Stoning was a form of killing you. You know, they weren't just meaning to spank you with a stone. They were trying to kill you with stones. Why? What's the deal here? All right, well, here's the source of hostility to Christianity. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. 
And this has to do with fundamentally, how do you see yourself? How do you see humanity in these passages, in ourselves, in our own lives? Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. All right, so you have two classes of people. Right, two groups of people. It's good to see this in Scripture. One is setting their mind on the things of the flesh. I would, I would, I would label that with our recent vocabulary, man-centered. And then there are those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. All right, now, an important, important insight that's not taught in this passage but taught throughout the New Testament. What is it that makes those two parties exist? Is it that some person at one moment decides, I think I'll set my mind on the flesh. And then the next moment, I think I'll set my mind on the spirit. And then the next one, I'll set my mind on the flesh. What makes these two categories exist? Well, it, it is the spirits indwelling that m- makes this new category. At one point, everybody lived in the category of what the Bible calls in Adam. We were all descended from the race of Adam where sin had dislodged man from God and the spirit of God no longer dwelt in man. We all start in that category. But what Jesus preached to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born a second time of the spirit. When that occurs, a second group of people now are on planet earth. And you have these two groups of people that are being identified in scripture. One is setting their minds on the things of the flesh. The other, the things of the spirit. All right, so that's where these two groups come from. Verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot The mind that, if you're in this class, if you are a descendant of Adam and you've not come into a rebirth by the Spirit, then the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God. Indeed, it cannot. Those are big, big words. And they very much explain why you show up With the gospel, which is the good news of what God has done for you to reconcile man to himself. And you hear that with hostility. Those are fighting words. You want me to do what? I want you to turn from your way of doing life and receive God's. Let's take these guys out back and beat them. Where does that come from? Was it because Paul was obnoxious? Because of the way he said something. I mean, Paul could have had violins playing in the background. He could, have, he could have served candy and been sweet and drippy as all get out. In the heart of man is a hostility toward God that says, you will not rule over me. You will not rule over me. Now, what gets even more difficult in this passage is not only does man not submit, but it says he cannot He cannot, which makes these verses really come to life. 
Because the Bible here says in verse chapter 14 that God bore witness to the word of his grace by signs and wonders. The word of his grace. The word of his grace. There's that term, grace. What exactly is that about? It's grace here telling me about man. It's grace here telling me about God. If you've got some dime store version of the word grace, then you have somehow translated it to to mean nice. Grace, you know, God treat us according to your grace. God just be nice to us. God overlook things. God give us another chance. Uh, That definition has extracted the richness from this word. Grace has to do with the fact that there's a bunch of people who God is bringing the good news to them, who do not submit to God and cannot submit to God. Grace has to do with what you're going to do to overcome that problem. What kind of God are you to overcome that problem? I mean, do you understand? You're reading this verse. I'm curious how you read this verse. Chapter 13, we had the long presentation of Paul, primarily to the Jews. Uh, Some respond with great rejoicing and belief, and some... Say no and become hostile. Same thing here. Presentation of the gospel goes out. Some respond. Some oppose and say no and become violent in that. Now, I'm just curious for you. You look at that. You watch that story play out over and over and over again. What what do you make of that? There was two responses. There was one gospel and two responses. Why did that happen that way? Why? Why? One group rejoicing and saying yes, and one group ugly and saying no. Why? Where, where do you go with that? Do you run into a man-centered realm? Do you say, well, smart group, stupid group. That's pretty easy, Keith. The smart group gets it. They understand. Jesus Christ revealed from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. Yeah, we read the Old Testament. Yeah, we get it. We were raised right. We believe, we believe what the Bible says. Yeah. Is that what you see here? Why do the people in this verse respond? Why? And why do the other ones not respond? What is it about these men who respond? Because we just got introduced to everybody who's related to Adam. Everybody does not submit to God and cannot. And yet in these verses, some people do. Does that puzzle you? Well, this, see, this is where grace comes screaming onto the scene. It provides the understanding for why do people respond to the gospel? Why, why do you respond to the gospel? Why did you say yes? Does that puzzle you at all? Do you, read, do you read the parts of the Bible that accurately depict who we are? That when the Bible comes and describes me, it uses that verse in verse eight, uh, chapter 8 of Romans. It says that I'm, I'm blind, so I, I, I don't see. It says that I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, so there's no life in me to tap into. Lifeless Dead, blind, enslaved to sin, which means I, I'm owned by someone else. 
And then my mind is hostile to God and it cannot submit. And yet here I am today as a Christian. Can you explain that to me? This is what makes me sing songs about the grace of God. Because grace was a whole lot more than God being in a good mood. It was a whole lot more than God just being nice. It was God in mysterious ways working responsiveness into me. So that when he did what he was going to do, I would respond to it. Because apart from that, I can't explain to you why I'm not still going. You want to fight? You want to rule over me? Really? Let's go. I'll take you out and anybody you send to me as well. When did that change? What changed by the grace of God? I have no other explanation for you. or, Or is my explanation, I'm just smarter than all the people driving down Veterans Highway today who don't even know today you go to church because they don't even know anything about God. Is is, is that why you're a believer? You're just sharper than the average guy? This mysterious gospel comes along and you, you, figured it out. Good for you. You are some impressive folks gathered here today. Give yourselves a hand. Is that how you read the Bible? See, this is what man-centeredness does to us. It features man in such a way that we just cannot help but insert ourselves over and over and over into the God equation. See, now this, this has something to do with how are you going to treat people who respond to you with stones? How are you going to treat them? What are you going to do to the person who, when you lay the claims of the gospel in front of them, they they treat you like Bill Maher, the comedian, who thinks Christianity is for idiots, and you just happen to be one of those weak-minded idiots? And you know, you know, God has rescued me from having a hostile heart toward Him, but I'm, I've still got a lot of hostility in me. <laughs> uh, so there's moments in which that stuff just makes me want to stone Him. I, I just I just want to come out. You know, let me introduce you, idiot, to idiocy here. Come on. So we look at somebody who hasn't seen what we've seen. Do you you pull that off with humility? See, grace is what creates humility. Not, Not the cheap grace that God is nice grace. Not that. The grace that becomes the only explanation for why you or me have responded to God. That grace, it doesn't make me go, I am so smart. I'm smart in a way that none of the people I grew up with and none of the people that I went to church with growing up, they never figured it out, but I figured it out. Look at me, I became a Christian. Look at that. I became a pastor. Look at that. I am one impressive person. But that's what seasons, that's what makes us sound obnoxious when we deal with the fallen world. Because we've forgotten Romans 8 described them and described us as well. When Paul is about to get worshipped by these folks, he turns around and says, whoa, 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 time out. I'm a man like you. I'm just like you. I'm made of the same stuff you're made of. All those people who respond and hate Christianity, is there humility in us? 
that recognizes the only difference that I can explain between you not responding and me responding is the grace of God. I can't explain it any other way. It's not because I'm smarter than you, better than you, more diligent than you, willing to sacrifice more than you are. And by the way, this informs how Christians fellowship with one another as well. I'm reminded of this almost every night. I, I walk at night and pray, so I'm walking through the neighborhood. Last night was, was a odd, different moment. I, no, I walk late, so there's you know, no reason for anybody to be walking that late. And there's just one guy walking last night in the other direction. I don't ever see people, so it's kind of weird. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with this guy? <laughs> he comes walking. And I'm realizing, Lord, why is it that I am out here relating to you. Why am I out here just dwelling with you, just talking to you, just receiving from you, just exchanging with you? And all these people just in their houses, I mean, maybe they don't walk and pray, but the odds are they're not even paying attention to God. Why is it that I'm up late at night praying And relating to God, is it because I'm just a very, very noble person? Or is it because by the grace of God, there's something responding in me to God? Do you you see other people that way? When you go to compare yourself with others, right, in the fellowship of the church, maybe you're one of those 4.30 a.m. Bible readers, you know? And then maybe you're one of those people that everybody knows you're a 4.30 a.m. Bible reader. How do they know that? They're not up at 4.30 to see anything you're doing. Trust me. So the only way they would ever know you're up at 4.30 is you told them. Hmm. (laughs) What was up with that? You should keep that to yourself. And what do you think about those people who never, never seem to be able to get up in the morning and do their morning devotions? I mean, you're up at 4.30. Hmm. What do you think about those people who can't seem to do that? Can't seem to prioritize the things that really matter in this world. Things that are just too busy. What, were you up late last night doing something that don't matter as much? Hmm? Why do you say stuff like that? Why do we feel that way? Because we see ourselves as the epicenter of what's caused our lives to be what it is. Rather than scratching our heads going, why am I up at 4? Well, I think, why are you up at 4.30 for a bunch of reasons. But why am I, what causes me to respond to God? It is the grace of God that causes you to respond to God. Whether you are devoted in your devotions, whether you are a great wife or a hardworking husband or somebody who's leading a Bible study, whoever you are, you're doing this by the grace of God. It gives you no ground. To stand in somebody else's world and look down your nose at them. Because you, apart from the grace of God, are hostile and don't and won't submit to God ever. Except for grace. Now this is where what's so important that we, we don't try to Christianize the world. We don't try to morally transform the world apart from God. This is why our hope as human beings is not in the government. It's not in our education systems, right? If you've watched the news enough, you would think somehow the saviorism of humanity is in the government or if it's not there, it's in the education system. One of those two things is going to save humanity from all of its problems. The right government 
and, and if we just teach our kids right, all right, and then, then if you're maybe a little man-centered believer, you would demote both of those in place of the family. So we got, our hope is in the government, our hope is in education. No, our hope is in the family. Family, it's the, it's the molecule of all of that exists. It's the family. Well, you know, the one problem with all three of those things is there are people on the outside going to work on the outside. That's all they're touching. Now, those are good things in some ways. But grace comes and gives new life, transforms the heart, and only God can do that. This is why we preach for conversion. This is why we, because conversion brings regeneration. And regeneration brings life and change. This is why the gospel is not a self-help program. The gospel is not trying to convince humanity how to just improve things a little bit. The gospel is God telling me he needs to come in and be God. And take over. And give me a new life and take me out of Adam and give me a spirit and dwelt life. So that I'll stop being hostile to him and I'll become responsive and obedient. That's what the gospel says. That's what we preach for conversion. But you can't get there unless you turn. Unless you repent, unless you change. This is why you cannot compromise the gospel because if you think getting people to slowly change their life is the gospel, you've misunderstood the gospel. Getting people to turn to the living God to receive new life is the gospel. That's where we're hoping to take folks. Let me jump into this last category here. God says something here. And this is, this is related to where these men respond. Verse 15. Excuse me. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We live in Romans 8 too. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. All right, we've, we've looked at man and his responsiveness or lack of responsiveness. Look, look at God in this passage here. Because we get introduced to an apologetic on God here. A conversation is being had. These now are guys who are more into Zeus and Hermes. These are, these are, this is not the Jewish synagogue folks anymore. These are Greeks. These are Bible. What Bible? Uh, so we, we can't talk about Abraham and Moses and all that God did with these guys. They don't pay attention to any of that. Maybe they've heard of some of that. Maybe they haven't. They're Greeks and they're into something else. And Paul is going to invade their world and he's going to present God to them. But notice he does something very different here. If you've read Acts 13, Paul's presentation to the Jews starts in Genesis. Paul picks up the Bible that they know and says, hey, Jew, you understand this. God has, God has bore witness with you. God has told you about this. God's already installed himself. Let me just reference it. And so he just begins to pull out the references that God's already put in their lives. But when he comes to the Greeks, he, he can't do that. But there is a witness in their lives. 
God has already shown up in their lives. So he reaches back into their world and he pulls out the witness of God. Says, you've already heard this. You are, you already know this. Let's talk about this. So he approaches the Greeks very different than he approaches the Jews. And that's very important. I think something to learn here. John Stott points this out. He says, although the substance of his message was invariable, right? It's the gospel. That's where he's going. You can't vary that. He varied his approach and emphasis. We need to learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there ever any need to do so. Let me go back up, though. We have no liberty to edit the gospel. We have no liberty to edit the gospel. Everybody's amen to me in their heart right now, but you're going to bump into this question somewhere in the future. Wait, 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 wait. Time out, dude. So you think that Jesus is the only way? The only way. And so that people who live somewhere else who've never heard, and they don't believe in Jesus Christ, you, you believe you believe what? They're, they're going to hell? So wait, time out number two. You believe in a God who you say is good and loving that he punishes people for eternity? Whoa, 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 man. What? Are you for real? In that moment, those are the gospel's claims. And you are a spokesman for the gospel. And you do not have permission to edit the gospel. Even though the person sitting across from you thinks you're an idiot. You are a social reject. Dude, that is archaic. Oh, so now you're not modern and with it. You're old-fashioned and out of style, dude, in polyester. How can you believe this kind of stuff? So, okay, so now you have to dig out of the, oh my gosh, I, I mean, I even feel like an idiot the way he said it to me and the way he responded to me. It's like, uh, well, it doesn't exactly mean, you know, we try to edit and remove all this stuff and uh, let me see if I can make it say this. How's that sound? Is that all right? There's a reason why they wanted to stone these guys because the gospel was the gospel. And you and I don't have permission to edit the gospel. Do you know why we don't have permission to edit the gospel? Because the gospel reflects who God is, and we don't have permission to edit God. And that's what man-centeredness hates. Man-centeredness wants to have the flexibility to do what it wants to do. And that comes from Romans 8. You will not rule over me. The way you are, no. No, I will not tolerate the way you are. You will not tell me that you're that kind of a God. I will not let that be the case. And so you have people changing the gospel. But I, I agree with Mr. Stott. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there ever any need to do so. But we have to begin where people are to find a point of contact with them. With secularized people today, this might be what constitutes authentic humanness, right? That might be a topic they can relate to. Or the universal quest for transcendence. The hunger for love and community and people's quest for acceptance. The search for freedom, or the longing for personal significance. Wherever we begin, however, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news, and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. So in other words, you may not be able to open the Bible up and use the witness of the Bible that God gave to the nation of Israel to convince from the Bible people to put their faith and hope in Christ. 
So you may have to start over here. You may have to just deal with the realities of the human heart and what human life is like. Now, you're borrowing biblical definitions for all that stuff. You're bringing insights into how life feels and the things that are common to every one of us as we quest our way through life, looking for something outside of ourselves and desiring to to get our lives fixed. What is that telling us? Well, at some point when you go to fix that over there, you're going to have to present Jesus Christ. As a remedy to it. So you may not start on a page in the Bible, but you will have to, if you're going to present the gospel, you're going to have to end up on the pages of the Bible discussing the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other place. But real quickly, look at, the, look at what's in this verse about God. He's a living being. Turn from your vain ways to the living God. He is the creator. Everything came from him. He's slow to anger and patient with wrongdoers. You know, God is overlooked. Listen, Overlooked, not in the sense of, hey, I just swept that under the carpet. Every moment of God's patience was just God taking that sin and transference to his own son. So there was no overlooking in the sense that, oh, yeah, some, I guess some sins are just kind of, who knows where they went. Oh, no. The ones that are all forgiven, they all went on the son. None of them got misplaced. So this wasn't God looking the other way, so to speak. And the last thing it says is, is I want to say he is adequately self-revealing. The Bible says he did not leave himself without witness. He did not leave himself without witness. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word martis. We get martyr from that word. It's the common word for witness. And in this case, it's used a little differently. But I'll come back later. You, know, you remember, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Remember this? And you will be my... Witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Same concept here. God did not leave himself without witness. What was the witness in this passage that Paul's referring to? Well, there was rain that caused plants to grow and fruit to come. And God gave you pleasure as a result of that. That was the witness. That was God saying something to you. Paul uses that like it's a fact. For these folks. He says, God, God's already been talking to you guys. He's been talking to you through this. And this is what the Bible says about that, right? Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Right? That's a fact. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Right, so the heavens, if you dare to look up at them, they're speaking to you. Right this second, they are talking. What are they talking about? They're talking about God who created them. There's fingerprints left all over them of the God who made them. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, look how personal creation now becomes. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. There is a personal creator who's observable in his creation. And God said he designed creation that way. Romans 1 verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. In a way... When somebody goes, well, wait, I don't even get this whole God thing. God can legitimately turn around and say, but I already told you that. No, I I never even got the whole thing that you existed. No, 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 I already told you that. 
Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The moment anything came into existence. And this is a big philosophical debate about where does everything comes from, right? Cause and effect, cause and effect. You keep going back, you keep going back. Eventually, something started everything. Now, if, if, if you're somebody tapping into evolution, you have got the giantest leap of faith, bigger than any leap of faith I've ever had to take. Because you have to violate everything about science to create this one step before you can make use of what you call science. You have to believe that something can come from nothing. And scientifically, look, I'm an engineer by degree, so I had to live through a little bit of science presentations. You got no science for that one, pal. None. You have a you have all this science that you say takes you back to some kind of a big bang, but you got nothing to explain where the bang come from. And you're dead, right? You're dead in the water now. But God says the mere fact that things exist screams at you that somebody made it. That's what God says. That's what he says in this passage clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is an interesting perspective on God's part. John Calvin said, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct and awareness of divinity. That's what God's saying in Romans 1 too. What is set forth in scripture concerning God's secret providence was never extinguished from men's hearts without some sparks always glowing in the darkness. Right? Remember, we are made in the image of God. There's something unique about us that still has an element of that image embedded in it. Now, we've fallen and sin has come in and it's, it's twisted and turned everything. But if you visit the little blue planet floating in the universe, nobody could extract a little piece of history and walk away to another planet and say, hey, that little blue planet, it's, a, it's about equal amoebas floating around. It's about the animal kingdom. Really? That's what you'd walk away and say? Or would you say this is a planet uh, with human beings on it who seem to be unique amongst all of creation? You know, come on, Honestly. That's what you'd find. You'd find the story of humanity featured on this little blue planet. Because man was made in the image of God. And there still is the the residue of that image in every person. Derek Thomas says, Paul knew that they shared one thing in common, even though they denied it. They possessed an implanted knowledge of the creator. Every person possesses an implanted knowledge knowledge of the creator. And you can dispute that or you can not dispute it. But being the fact that you and I share very limited knowledge of all that there is to know and God is infinite in what he knows, he seems to be more qualified to say what's true about us and what's not. And this is what God says about us. Right? Let me, let me just... 
just close with a little bit of thought because this is, this is my great concern is that we are so man-centered, man you know, the heroicism is associated with man. Uh, all of creation answers to man that we've become created beings who somehow feel it's okay for the creator to answer to us too. And so we ask those kinds of questions. Like, wait, what you're saying? Jesus is the only one. What about the person? What about the person who's never known this or never known that? And we, we paint them into the most innocent setting that we can possibly create for them. And then we make God wrong. God is wrong if he does something like that. That is such a man-centered thing to do. What if there really is a personal God who's existed in eternity past whose power and and character is off the charts, whose wisdom and perfections you and I can't even begin to have much of a conversation about. What if he is, and he is the way he is, and he does some of those things, whether we like it or not? What if Romans is true? What if the God of the universe, who's the only one who's truly capable of seeing his creation accurately and fully, says... I am not ashamed of the gospel through Paul, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what about the people who reject the gospel? That's exactly where this whole passage goes. People rejected the gospel. Did they do so in innocence? No, because what's inside of them in Romans 8 is true. My heart does not submit to God, and it will not. Because, God, you will not rule over me. Every one of us, the one thing that bugs us is when somebody else's agenda is forced on me to be my agenda. It's un-American. It ain't right personally. And man created all those ideas. What if it's absolutely right for a God to create us and then to impose his agenda upon our lives? What if that's absolutely right? And I say, you're not going to do that to me. But that's what Romans describes us as having done that. Chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged. This is not innocence. This is an exchange. This is, I know something goes that way, but I refuse. I'll create this instead. That's what is in the heart of man. Even if man creates something pretty, it is still a substitute for God. What if all my life I just wanted to be the best neurosurgeon ever? Okay, that's cool. Great. But if that's God for you, then you just created something that looks noble and nice, but it took the place of God. And that's the problem. It displayed, you exchanged God for that. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be fulfilled. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. See, God does not paint this picture that everybody's just got this, this sort of innocent persona. 
God describes the heart of man as refusing to be ruled over. He uses words like hard and impenitent, self-seeking, obeying unrighteousness, suppressing the truth, exchanging the truth for a lie. And God comes along and says, oh, by the way, I've already told you guys a whole bunch of stuff that you've just blown off and completely disregarded. I can just hear people argue with Paul. I can hear modern atheism arguing with Paul. Paul stands up and says, hey, listen, God didn't leave himself without witness. God has been telling you about himself. You know the rain? That's God speaking to you. You know the, the fruit that comes from the ground? That God's speaking to you. Oh, please, give me a break. Dude, I've studied earth science. I know where the rain comes from. It's a rain cycle, idiot. Evaporation, condensation, falls on the ground. Yeah. Have you ever opened a biology book, moron? Do you know why seeds do what they do? You know? So, so if God wants to prove himself to be God, I mean, he's going to have to show up in a little different way than that, all right? He's going to need to be a little bit different of a witness if he wants to get my vote. Oh, Really? Wow, I guess th- at this point in our discussion, I, all I can say is duck. <laughs> because God doesn't owe you any more evidence. And the person who stands and says, until God jumps through three hoops and shows up in a test tube and I can combine these things scientifically and poof out comes God, until that happens, I will not believe. Well, can I just tell you, you will not believe because Romans 8 is in your heart. That's why you won't believe. You can play with your test tubes all you want, but... What if, what if you're here today and you're demanding that God give you more evidence? God said he left witnesses. He did not leave himself without witness. You remember the guy, there's a guy in Luke chapter 16, he's, he's in hell and he's allowed a conversation with Abraham and a man named Lazarus who's in heaven. And in this exchange, he realizes a predicament that he's in and he cries out for some mercy to be sent to his five brothers. I've got five brothers, Abraham. Can you, can you send Lazarus back from the dead to go and, and tell my five brothers So that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham says, well, they already have witnesses. They have Moses and the prophets. God already wrote down enough for them to believe. They just need to believe it. Well, no, Abraham, you don't understand. In other words, that's not good enough. But if you just send Lazarus back from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham says, nope, not going to happen. Because Romans 8 is really the problem. Even if a guy comes back from the dead, they're still not going to believe. But but here's the reality. You You can demand all the evidence you want. And somewhere, you've gotten amongst a crowd of man centered man applauders who have made you feel like you have the right to question the God of creation. And you stand today and you say, you will not rule over me. And until you jump through my three hoops, I will not believe in you. Get jumping. You want me to believe in you? Get jumping. I'm here to tell you today. The answer from God is no. I've already jumped through all the hoops that I plan on jumping through. 
when the God of glory takes on humanity and comes in the form of a man and dies on a cross, he's jumped through the ultimate hoop that he's ever going to jump through. He's provided evidence. He has witnessed. And do you realize actually God counts this as a witness to you? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. People will stand before God one day and God will have testified what I I testified through my word. I I testified through my people. You look up at the heavens and it, and it was speaking to you about me. I gave you plenty of evidence and you would not believe That's the real problem in these verses. Where's it? Eric, go ahead and come back up, Eric. You know, we started considering the trouble that can come into our souls. Jeremiah depicting a life of trouble. And maybe you're here this morning and you are experiencing a life of trouble. And you know what it is to have lost joy, to live in grief, for your heart to be sick. You know something about that. And your heart is troubled. Our question, question, unavoidable question. Are you pursuing a knowledge of God in your trouble? Jeremiah's dilemma for people was that they needed to boast in their knowledge of him. What was missing in those people's trouble was the knowledge of him. This is the knowledge of him made most clear to us. Certainly the spirit can lead us into knowledge of him. This is the most clear witness to God and who he is. Let me just say this first to those of us here who call ourselves Christians. I mean, we're, we, we, we want God to rule over us. We, we're not shaking our fist at him. We want God in our lives. But our lives are troubled. Hearts are sick. There's lack of joy in our lives. And God stands and says, but I did not leave myself without witness to you. If you lack joy, it's because you, you lack a knowledge of me. If your heart is sick, it's because you lack a knowledge of the healer. So you can be sitting here today, sick and heartbroken, troubled, and God would stand and say, I have left you a witness about me and your heart is desperate for me. Are you pursuing me? Listen, this is like an epidemic Christians who just live in misery but don't open the Bible. What? What are we doing? What are we hoping will heal us? Time? Circumstances changing? Well, uh, yeah, that does change some stuff. But you don't need God for those things to make you feel different. The knowledge of God is what heals our lives. And God says, I've not left myself without witness, but do you really want to know me? you really pursuing me? Are you, are you okay today having walked in here with a lack of joy and a sick heart confessing I've not been around God, I've not been in God's word, I've not let 
the testimony of him talk to me. It's not speaking to me. And I'm going to walk out of here and live this week the same way I walked in here and lived last week. Listen, if you're a, if you're a believer, don't, don't live in misery. What your heart needs is not for people to change and circumstances to change. Your heart needs the knowledge of God. It's what you're made for. It needs some big, giant gulps of who God is, what he is like. That would be refreshing in life for our souls. If you are here this morning and you are waiting for more evidence, you are waiting to respond to God Somewhere in you is, I think God needs to show me something more before I transfer my hope to him or even believe that he exists. Listen, I, I, I can't fully speak for God here. Just tell you from the Bible, there's so much that God has already said and already done. It's very possible that you could be sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm just, just waiting for God to just... I don't know what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for God to just kind of really show up and show himself to me. It's very possible he's, he's already shown you everything he's going to show you. It's very possible. And you won't read it and you won't listen to it and you won't gaze at it and go, this came from somewhere. This came from someone. You, you won't do that. And quite honestly, can I just tell you, if you're sort of on the verge of wanting to do that and not, you're just stalling. That's all you're doing. You're stalling. The argument is over. But what resides still in you is a heart that says, I know it's over, but I just don't want anybody telling me what to do. That's why I don't believe in God. Because I don't want anybody to rule me. Listen, if, if I could draw from the veins of atheists and squirt it onto a table, that's what you'd bump into more than anything else. You'd bump into the confession of Romans chapter 8. Not this, well, scientifically I know God can't exist. You just don't want anyone to rule you. And if there is no God or you live your life like there is no God, you get to rule you. Well, who doesn't want that? Well, who doesn't want it? The person who's convinced that the one thing I need in this world is God. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're convinced this morning. I I don't want to keep stalling. God has shown me enough. And I don't know if he's going to show me anything else. And I need to make a decision. Well, let's pray and see if God will help you do that this morning. Let's stand up together. Father, what is of most vital importance is that we know that our life is in your hands, that we are right with you, that what you sent your son to accomplish, to pay the penalty of sin, to bring forgiveness for our sins and restore us to yourself, that that has been accomplished in our own life. 
So Lord, what's most critical today is for any person here today, you have provided witness to them. You have witnessed to them again today. And something in their heart cannot be denied. There is still the residual image of God upon their lives. Something in their heart says, yes, I deep down I know there's a God. Lord, I pray this morning you would bring the stalling to an end. There not be a person here who's really having a fake argument. They, they've conceded the argument in their own hearts long ago. But they just wrestle with turning their lives over to you. Lord, this morning, this morning, let that change. Let it be like the folks in Iconium who didn't pick up rocks. They just picked up their lives and gave them to you. Said, ah, I believe. Lord, help us here this morning. Bring grace into this meeting, Lord. Bring the grace that brings responsiveness into this meeting. Or not that we're smart enough to figure you out or work this to our own advantage. Lord, just because our hearts right now are saying, respond to God. Respond to God and give him your life. and Stop hesitating. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're sensing that going off in your heart right now, that's the grace of God at work in your heart. So let me ask you to do something. Just brave from where you are right there. If this morning, you've been stalling on giving your life to God, but this morning you want to you stop the stall and say, God, I give it to you. I give it to you. you. Just raise your hand. Raise your hand right now. Let me see it. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? just want to tell God, God, I'm, I'm going to turn the keys over to you this morning. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. Okay, I'm going to pray for you who raised your hands. Lord, for those that this morning are saying, Lord, this is the morning. Today's the morning. Where I don't hesitate any longer. I'm going to make a decision this morning. But I'm convinced in my heart and taking a step of faith to believe in who you are. I do that by faith, God. I don't know everything still. But my heart tells me that you are God. And so this morning, I, I surrender my life to you. I don't resist. I don't want to live my life my own way. I want you to live your life in me. I want you to come take up your life in me and I want my life to be yours. This morning, Lord, September 29th, 2013, I'm doing that. Let me speak to those of us who have, who have done that at some point. You've been walking with God and you are, so I had not planned on doing this, so please give God a moment to minister to you. You are, you are Jeremiah chapter 8. You are troubled. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. If that's where you are this morning, this was not going to be anything about this message until about 10 minutes before the service.
I'm not going to ask you to come forward, so I'm going to let you just receive something. Everybody bow your heads for a second. I just want to let people communicate this to me without communicating it to everybody else. So just close your eyes and let people have a moment here. How many of you guys are here? You, you're, not, you're not a God hater. You're not shaking your fist at God, but you would...